You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I've been either on a diet or binging every day since I was probably 12. I mean, I've never had a healthy attitude to my body. And actually, sometimes when people send me messages saying, you're a fucking disgusting land whale and I wish you'd get harpooned, I reply saying, like, you know I'm a person, right? Like, you know I'm an actual person who panics every time they eat a biscuit and, and goes three days without eating anything other than meat because I'm trying to lose weight. Hello and welcome back. I am delighted that today's guest is my dear friend Rebecca Reed, the writer, journalist and commentator, best known for her work for The Telegraph, Grazia, this morning and Good Morning Britain, where her stints sparring with Piers Morgan are quite something to behold. Her first novel, Perfect Lies, is out in February. In this episode, Rebecca talks us through her life, including her adolescence, where she was extremely precocious and headstrong and ragged her hair to look like a Victorian, to her late teens, where she dreamed of being a blonde while working in various jobs before finding success as a journalist. She's especially candid about her relationship with her face, body and sexuality. So I should probably warn you here that we discuss the topics of bulimia and fetish clubs. Here's Rebecca Reed. Rebecca Reed, first thing I think of when I think of you is feminism. How to you does feminism and beauty join up? Where's the join? Is there an issue? So I find it very boring when people act like uh, wearing makeup is sort of some kind of anti-feminist statement. Um, and I find it very boring when people quiz. I remember Piers Morgan did this to me once. I was on telly and he said, we were talking about beauty and why women shouldn't be judged all they like. And he went, well, you're wearing a face full of makeup. Why have you done that? And I, was, and I said, well, to be completely honest with you, it's because the more makeup I wear, the less people message me after I've finished telling me how ugly I am. So actually, it's, it's a defence mechanism. Uh, but I, I think it takes a person who's never worn makeup to miss the point of makeup. And for me, the way that it fits best with feminism is it's, for me, it's artistic, it's creative, and it's also quite a meditative, um, sort of selfish time. Very rare, I would never stand around in my flat doing something to myself and feeling like that was an important thing to do if it weren't in order to present myself to the outside world. But that's, but therein lies potentially the rub because it is about being seen. Yes. Often it's about being seen. But then I don't know because there was a lot, a lot of the time, particularly when I was younger, I would put makeup on not to be seen just for fun, to experiment with it, to play yeah. with it. Yeah. And hundreds of sleepovers of trying to get winged eyeliner right and put blue eyeshadow on each other and work out how to contour. And that wasn't about being seen. That was about being, that was maybe about making ourselves more like the people we idolised. So I started writing for The Telegraph when I was 22. Um, I'm not sure when you become... Don't do that face. <laughs> Sorry, I just rolled my eyes at Rebecca because every time she mentions her ridiculously young success, it slightly pains me but also makes me very proud of you. <laughs> but yeah, so I so I started writing about my sex life in The Telegraph when mm. I was 22. And mm. uh, I, lots of people at the time were like, oh, you know, you'll never be able to get a proper job now. You've, you've, you know, you've ruined your, your image. Mm. And actually, I think increasingly people are much more flexible about the way that they they do these things and we've all, most people have overshared on the internet now let me go back to you beginning to write about sex first column do you remember what it was on 
Uh, the first thing I ever wrote about sex for the Telegraph. Bear in mind, I had so I started with my uh, very good friend Angelica, a sex magazine called AFT, which stood mm-hmm. for about fucking time. Mm-hmm. Can we beat that. Can I say that? You can. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, so yeah, we started an online sex magazine called About Fucking Time, which was basically um, a where it was a, an online bible for women to ask any sexual question they'd ever wanted to. And it was an amazing project. Unfortunately, we couldn't make it make money because we were very young and we didn't really know how to monetize. So for them, I had written anything and everything I had written about. Um, which Harry Potter character are you in bed? Mm-hmm. I had written about anal fisting. But the first... Have you written about it yourself from your own perspective? So the first one I ever wrote about about me mm-hmm. was about body image and sex. Okay. It was about, um, is it bad that I am, I have a better time in bed when I feel thinner? And that was a really which. But uh, what was your answer? Well, my um, the answer was I don't know. Okay. And that's um, and I think a lot of the way, a lot of the way that I write doesn't tell you what the right or wrong answer is. I say this is what I think. Mm. This is what some other people think. And my instinct is this, but I don't like to come down on one line. I mm. think it's perfectly acceptable to feel better about sex when you feel better about your body. It's obviously bad that we feel better about our bodies when we're smaller. But it's yeah. not unreasonable, given that we're already trapped in this ma- this box of misery mm, if you're not mm, feeling skinny. Mm. It's not unreasonable to then have that affect mm-hmm. your sex life. And then I wrote this article about um, having sex when you're morbidly obese, The Telegraph, uh, which I think was the first time anybody had ever done that, The Telegraph. Right. Um, and that was my test piece to get into The Telegraph, because it was Christmas. Okay. And I remember my amazing editor, Emma Barnett, saying... Uh, everyone feels fat after Christmas. Let's write about fat sex. Okay. And I was terrified and I went away and I, I, it took me two days and I was in floods of tears on the first day because I didn't think I could do it. Yeah. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw it up and I'll never be able to write for Telegraph ever again. Hmm. And I did. I filed terrible copy and thank God Emma's such a babe because she gave me loads of notes and said, I want it back by this evening. And so then I had another small breakdown, but then I sorted it out and I made it good. And that was a, that was a baptism of fire in terms of journalism. And then they made me a they made me a columnist. So let's talk about let's go back. Let's mm-hmm. bookmark that because I've got so many questions to do with all of the things <laughs> you just spoke about. But I want to go back to young Rebecca Reed right. and the way that you looked and the way that you were developing ideas as a young girl, the climate of beauty around you, what that meant, what that represented. So I had this habit that I think was very telling about me as a teenager. That I would go out in the morning wearing an outfit and go to town or go to London or whatever. And halfway through the day, I would get so upset about what I was wearing that I'd go into a shop and buy a whole new outfit. And I realised a couple of years ago that I'd stopped doing that, which I think would probably signify quite significant personal growth. Because for a long time, what I was wearing and my makeup, it was like a costume. And in the morning, I'd wake up and I'd be like, who do I want to be today? And I always had this idea that people should have a sense of personal style, but I didn't because sometimes I would wake up and I'd want to be goth, mm-hmm. and I would wear and I would wear like a floor length black skirt with like a cropped black t shirt and loads and loads of eyeliner and very pale foundation. And then some days I wake up and I'd be like, actually, I feel preppy today, and I'd wear like a little Ralph Lauren um, polo shirt under a V neck jumper with a little rah rah skirt and ballet pumps and very sticky pink lip gloss mm-hmm. and lots of brown mascara. And I remember thinking there was something sort of wrong with me because I couldn't pick which mm-hmm. one of these things I wanted to be. And now I think it's now obviously totally reasonable. Yeah. But everybody else seemed to have an idea. I of hate what their style, style as a, as a yeah. thing because it is. I mean, I suppose as you get older, actually, you do develop a sense of style, and yes. it's easier. But I too 
yeah. and fully understand that thing where you know someone said mm, this person's signature was always to yes. wear one ring and I'd be like well, how did they decide yeah. that and, yeah. or, or she always wears black and I'd be like okay well I always wear black oh, but I've got so many clothes yeah. that aren't black yeah. and I'm like yes now I probably do like I think of my personal style now as like a slightly chubby Kate Middleton like, I'm very comfortable with that like any kind of stripy t-shirt a fitted okay. trouser some nice ballet pumps cut a navy jumper so I Can't like your style that. but I don't like Kate Middleton's style so I find that really <laughs> But off duty, not on duty. Because I okay, think she dresses quite well. If she's been papped, she's usually dressing quite well. Yeah, but she's very safe. Yes, but I'm, I'm not, I don't really take a lot of risks. Very safe. I wish I've got my friend. My friend Daisy Buchanan's an amazing journalist, mm. and she has the most amazing. She she wears. She's got this sort of floor length gold sparkly dress, and I just look at her and I'm like, I wish. And of course, I could do it. Mm. I don't know what it is that makes me think I can't, but I fear. I I very much fear it. Um, so but, you're safe, but you weren't always in a safe dress. So you were. No, I was. I was a mad dresser, and with makeup too. And with makeup too. I and mean, your hair. And oh, hair-wise, I was so I was obsessed with being a Victorian when I was a child. Yes. Which weirdly you were too. Yes. Yeah, so um, <laughs> Rebecca and I have known each other for a few years, and we've had many discussions about our strange histories of the way we've mm. looked and um, the various various phases and yeah i i too was obsessed with victorianism so i victorianism is yeah, that even victoriana victoriana yeah sorry so i used to until my until my early teens mm. i used to rag my hair did you which i think is again impossibly odd um, but yeah, my, my my long-suffering mother tore up a pillowcase and gave me rags. I used to buy those. I used to rag them. Aveda, um, they don't make them anymore, but they were like these like little so squishy sausages. Yes, yes, yes. I used so to do those. But I not used to do those as well. Rags. But because I so badly wanted to be Victorian, mm-hmm. the ragging somehow was sort of important to me. Amazing. And um, I used and I so I had that, and I used to do very very pale foundation because I was obsessed with being pale because Victorians wanted to be pale, I, and also I am enormously yeah. pale. Yeah. Uh, which is ironic because I am absolutely addicted to fake tan now. Yeah. Uh, but back in the day, I used to, yeah, so I'd be as pale as possible with this curly hair, which I thought was a brilliant look. And I remember the best Christmas present ever, my mum bought me this. It was sort of like a box the size of a sort of A4 piece of paper. The lid mm. flicked up and you put some water in the bottom and you put these sort of rubber sausages in it and closed it and it would heat up. Right. And then you'd wrap your hair in them and, right. they, and make it curly in sort of 15 minutes. Okay. Like a sort of, and it, the kind of curling tongs you can give a child because they only get to sort of 50 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could rag my hair quickly. And That's I was like, amazing. what wonderful parents that they didn't send me to a psychiatrist. They just I was going to say, me. I mean, like, I know that I'm saying I fully understand, but also I was quite weird. So yes. you were quite an odd Oh, enormous. I mean, I remember so the first book I read all the way through was Jane Eyre. And then I decided that I wanted to be Jane Eyre. Solid. And I, and, oh, we were such odd children. I had this best friend called Miriam. And we used to pretend that it was the Blitz all the time. Obsessed with the war. Victorians mm-hmm. or the war. Yeah. Um, second and, World War. Second World War. Not yeah. First, yeah. First, yeah. Yeah. first World War. Yeah. God, no. But yeah, so enormously strange. Very imaginative child. Um, mm. Who and I wanted to live in a different time period. And I dressed like it, mm. and I remember being very into dressing in sort of dresses. And well, my, all of my friends wanted. This was the sort of early noughties, so parachute trousers, sort of those huge with bits hanging off them, mm-hmm. with, with like a crop things. top. Yes, this this was very cool, and I used to like a sort of smock dress. Mm-hmm. And uh, and little little pumps and and my curly hair. So you really made no concessions to trends. No, to I was, the trends that were around. And I was I look back at it and I think God. So actually, a good example of this is we all had to go to school as our um, as our heroes. And my friends were like, Oh, do you want to come as class seven with us? Making up seven. And I was like, No, sorry, I'm going as Millicent Fawcett. 
unsurprisingly, other children found me enormously confusing. But yeah. I think I was so... But were you lo- sorry, no. but were you lonely? Did you have no, friends? No, but I wasn't at all lonely because other. Ch- I think if, you're com- if you have enough conviction in your weirdness, other children don't find it weird. Mm. It's only if you're self-conscious that, people, that kids pick up on it. Yeah, so children and adults. Accept- yes, exactly, so, yeah. yeah. And, and people just accepted that I was a very odd, quirky child and that was how things were going to be. So um, what... Do any products stand out from that period? So, my absolute from youngest, youngest, um, it, the the hair curling thing we talked right. about. The first sort of product that I remember having a really visceral reaction to was the Lancome Juicy Tube. Yeah. So these were, in case anybody uh, missed this, um, you could either buy a full size one or you could buy a packet of four smaller ones which was and buying a full size big one was a mugs game because the same price as getting four. Yeah. Um, so. They came in... But you had to get them at the airport, small ones. Wait, yes, only yeah. at the airport. Yeah. Uh, they came in oodles of flavours. So there was sort of... You had a blue one that was minty. You get an orange one that was called carrot. It's very sweet. Uh, and then there was a sort of variety, smorgasbord of different mm. shades of pink with different kinds of glitter in them. Yeah. And they were so sticky. Mm-hmm. Like, so obscenely sticky. Yeah, and obscenely sweet. And and you sort of smelt like a, a, a scented candle. Yeah. And your mouth got stuck together. And if you try to drink in a thing, you'd leave the sort of thick yeah. ring of lip gloss on it. But when you're younger, that's part of the whole excitement. I, I also had the thing about Juicy Tubes. And I remember thinking, God, how brilliant that I have this grown-up yes. thing. And it takes maintenance. Because at that point, when you start out, you want you almost want to maintain your beauty. You want yes. to top up your lipstick. You want it to be difficult. Because yes. it feels like a rite of passage. And you're involved. It, it's a sort of, yeah, it's a rela- it becomes a relationship with it. Yeah. If you're doing that. Whereas if something's easy and you've got on with it, it's very boring. But and also, there was they were a status symbol. We used to have them in our pencil cases. Mm-hmm. You used to swap. I think it's enormously unhygienic. Yeah. Um, but we always used to sort of yeah trade them over. Mm-hmm. And um, and they were they were they sort of oh what like which colours have you got? Trade them, buy them for a week, and it was like I think that was everybody in my year's first experience of beauty and it was also a great leveller because people you'd never usually talk to would suddenly be really cool because they had the flavour that nobody else had I mean not a great level because they cost like 27 quid no yeah and it was also something to aspire to it was a kind of a obtainable aspiration for someone in their teens what I always what what I always find interesting about lip colour particularly is apparently during the worst times of recession that's when lip colour sells best because it's a small indulgent luxury and when Mm -hmm. you're a teenager Small indulgent luxury is the only kind of luxury you can have because yeah. you don't have a lot of disposable income. Yeah. And it's all, yeah. Yeah, you know that film Saturday Night Fever? You yes. know how they wait to go to the disco on Saturday? Yes. For mine, it would be like going to Space and KSL Selfridges. Yeah. And exactly. I would be, that would be the thing. And I'd get one thing that I'd like canvas magazines to find the best one. Mm. And then I'd go there and I'd probably, I mean, not every week I could afford one, but the times that I could, that would be the thing that you'd go home and it would become a big deal yes. for the following and, and it would always be sort of wrapped week, up in tissue weeks. and it would be in a mm. card bag and you'd feel, and you'd walk around, well, with us, it was our local town yeah. or, or, or London, yeah. like holding it like you'd achieved something and like you were suddenly far more special than you used to be because yeah. you had this exciting secret. And I remember like wanting to get home and unpack this new makeup and put it on my face mm-hmm. like it was going to make me into all the people I really wanted to be. Who did you want to be? So I was just trying to remember. Um, so this is what, 2004, 2005? I don't, I really don't know. 
Because that was what I think I just Brittany, wanted to be like Christina Aguilera. She's still yeah, it would have been Brittany or Christina, but I I think really what I wanted to be was objectively beautiful. Right. I don't think I cared. Or, I don't think there was a specific celebrity I wanted to swap with. Mm. It was that all I wanted was to get to a situation where I was undeniably attractive to other people. To other people. What were you aiming for? So this is so slim. Would right. slim slash? I mean, thin. Actually, I probably would have said thin rather than slim. Thin single digits dress size would have been a very very high priority. Okay. Um, what size were you? I was probably a ten. Yeah, I was a size ten until I was about sixteen, and then I was probably a twelve until I was about eighteen, and I lost a lot of weight and I'm back to a ten. Okay, so, so it's never large. I was going to say because size big. ten is not is no. not anything like you, no. But, you when know. You, but when you're a size ten, when you're sort of thirteen, I had a very adult body. Right. My whole life, I like, I I sort of had a C cup at the age of 11 and I had a very small waist and very big hips mm. I looked like an adult did that bother you? But, so the body itself didn't bother me the way people reacted to it very much did because adults suddenly backed away mm-hmm. because, like like they didn't want to be seen as, as being inappropriate right. but actually I was no more likely to be a source of that than anybody else was mm-hmm. um, and then other adults who didn't know how old I was treated me like I was sexual and that freaked mm-hmm. me out and sort of men, men asking me for my phone number when I was 13, 14 and they were in their late 20s because they assumed I was in my late teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a very frightening thing suddenly to have all these tools that you don't know what to do with. But also when you're a child who's quite well developed, you're encouraged to cover up, mm-hmm. which makes you look chubby. Because if you've got big boobs and you're wearing a sort of tent dress, mm. you end up... And I think also a lot of people... I, I have relatively big arms. Most people with big boobs do tend to have big arms to go together. Mm. Um, so I'd be wearing sort of a tent and all you'd see is my sort of my boobs going out into what looked like a massive stomach mm-hmm. and wasn't. So I sort of was treated as, as the chubby one even though I wasn't. Right. I was actually relatively sexy, which was the unfortunate mm. yeah. thing. Where were you growing up? So I lived in South London in Ballam until I was 11 mm-hmm. and then we moved to a village called Mayfield in East Sussex where I went to an all-girl Catholic boarding school. Wow. Okay. Yes, which is a place to, like, if you want to have a complicated experience of puberty, you put all of you together <laughs> and then just close the doors. Yes. The, the thing with boarding school is that you should never leave before sixth form because you're sort of lovely until year nine yeah. and then you're Yeah, nine is 13. Vile. Yeah. yeah vile from 13 through 16 and that's the sort of real mean girls years mm. where people are just i mean eating disorders were rife self-harm was a massive epidemic um you would with what you would literally with one breath tell somebody that they're your best friend and with another tell their deepest darkest secrets somebody just just because you're doing geography it was like a war zone and then suddenly something happens at 16 after gcse's you just said something just shifts and then you become these incredible women, and I ha- and most of my best friends are still from that from that period of my life. So there you are in boarding school, and mm-hmm. you're with lots of other women. Presumably, you're not you're not seeing many men. There aren't many. I men mean, literally, you could go eight nine weeks without seeing a boy you weren't related to. Okay, so not many men, but are you still invested in the way you look? Are you still moving towards this idea of being? objectively good looking enormously and I think so every morning we would get up and we'd go to breakfast come back upstairs and we would put on because there, so there was a sort of a code of honour about makeup so you had to look natural now this wasn't because we would get in trouble my school were very relaxed mm-hmm. about these things it was because it was considered sad or lame 
to be seen to be trying. So tinted moisturizer. Okay. I remember uh, the Laura Mercier tinted tinted moisturizer. Oh, that's fancy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that was what you had to have. So you get okay. you get one for one for Christmas, one for your birthday. Right. It's a very good um, tinted moisturizer. It's a, it's a yeah. great one. Yeah. Um, and then um, brown mascara mm-hmm. and loads of juicy tube and hair that was so straight it sat flat yeah. to your head do you use GHDs, GHDs. Yeah. Had, and, if, and if you had and I remember somebody had a pair that equally expensive yeah. and not GHDs and we're all like no, it had to be a, a GHD and yeah. they did this little beep beep noise when they were ready and that yeah. noise just takes me back to being a teenager but yeah we were we were absolutely beauty was still a huge huge thing mm. but I think all of us were moving towards that same goal I think maybe did it feel competitive or was it something that brought you together no not competitive with each other competitive except so we had these things called socials so um, twice a term they would put you all on a bus mm-hmm. drive you out to a boys school all boys boarding school God. release you into what was effectively the gym but somebody put a disco ball out yeah. play music from the 80s and then basically shut the doors and seal you in and these things were absolute hell yeah. either you either you got with loads and loads of people in which case you'd done well or nobody wants to get with you and then you'd failed. And sometimes I'd go, and I remember once going and going, like a little uh, black roll roll skirt, pink polo shirt, so much duty tube, like it was like inside my mouth. Polo, can I say, polo shirts and roll roll skirts, skirts were such a thing. But why? And also I don't know, but a belt I loved over it. the top of your roll roll skirt. So weird. Could, just like those three garments yeah. in no world should ever have belonged <laughs> together, ever. Yeah. I get my own them individually yeah but what is that combination i don't know but i used to do it too and you've just it's taken me back yeah yeah sorry the, go on yeah. so you're or in this room wearing shirts and uh, gypsy skirts disgusting like, awful but yeah i i too used to do yeah. that and a circle oh belt God. yeah just astonishing. Awful. it was such yeah. a look yeah but anyway so you're yeah. in this room um desperately trying and, and if and there's this sort of room that boys are the only sexually frustrated ones but i think girls are actually just as bad yeah charging at each other trying trying to get trying to get as much sort of attention from boys as possible and what was your experience but, so sometimes, yeah, sometimes I would go and I would be in my, and if I wore the right outfit and I was hanging out with the right girls, I would, you know, get with a couple of boys over the course of the evening and all would be well. A couple of times I went and I tried to wear things that were a bit different. Mm-hmm. So once, and I still stand by this outfit, I had mm-hmm. this very tight black wrap top with little sleeves, mm-hmm. which I wore with kind of cut off boyfriend jeans and, and, very, and high pink heels. That's good. Which I think is quite a cool That's outfit. A good look, yeah. And everyone was like, what have you done? Did you have a very strong sense of what you wanted to do when you grew up? Um, I think I had a sense of wanting to be significant in something. Okay. Um, I was very 
But again, I went to this incredible school where we were all taught that we could all do literally anything we wanted and we were all brilliant and we were all geniuses. It wasn't technically true about mm. any of us. Um, <laughs> but I was very, I was pushed. Um, and I think I knew I wanted to talk for a living, which I do half the time. But I also remember being told quite a lot that writing wasn't really for me because I was very dyslexic. Um, my spelling's very, very poor, very, very loose grasp of grammar. I went to a Montessori primary school where everything was optional, so I never mm-hmm. learned any of the basics of language. So you weren't yeah. thinking writing necessarily? So I didn't think about writing. I wasn't really into writing, because I remember saying I wanted to be a writer, and somebody was like, well, you're not in the top English group, so how are you going to do that? And I was like, yes, you're right, that really will be an impediment to my career. So were you just thinking media then? I think, so I think I wanted, I wanted to act for a long time. Yeah. Then I decided that I wasn't pretty enough to be an actress. Which is really oh. sad, actually. Okay. I was sort of 15, I sat down with my mum, and I was like... Listen, I've been thinking about RADA. This is exactly how I talked. I was enormously regretted, Charles. Yeah. I've been thinking about RADA, and I think, really, we need to be realistic about my ability to get in. And my mum was like, what? Well, you know, okay, why? And I said, well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not ugly enough to be a character actress, and I'm not pretty enough to be a, pro- to be a proper actress. And I said proper rather than, you know. Yeah, 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 like yes. a famous actress. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she said, well, darling, you know, you're 15. It might be a bit sooner to tell. And I said, no, I've thought about it. I've looked at my face. I've assessed how pretty I'd be if I lost a significant amount of weight. And I just don't think Rada's going to be on the cards for me. Fucking hell. Oh, what a ridiculous... So, that, so I said... What a ridiculously precocious <laughs> thing to say. And then I said, but I, I still have a love for the theatre. 15, of course, 15. Of course. Um, so I think I would like to direct. And my mum sort of went, okay. And she was actually very indulgent in this conversation, given that it was really not important. I wasn't going to be... It was 15. Um, so yeah, then I did a lot of directing at school, and a lot of writing plays, and that I loved. And actually, I was a very good director. Uh, but sadly, when I went to Bristol, there were other girls, there was a couple of other girls in my year who were horrible, and who to basically took control of all the directing took it away for our entire year and I couldn't compete well actually I had depression when I was at my first year at Bristol did you? yeah and Bristol has a very poor track record with mental health you'll notice it's in the media a lot at the moment because people keep dying because they don't because we shouldn't say that no. but um, yeah no there's a, there's a huge spate of suicides there and it's always you, been very bad what what caused your depression I was so I mean I know there doesn't oh, yeah. need to be no, a no, cause no, no, in mine, but, no yeah. in my case there was I, think, I know mm. for a lot of people it's purely a chemical imbalance but for me there really was a cause mm. and I was so cripplingly lonely um, I was so I started at Bristol I was in this block of flats which one? Well, um, it's called Churchill mm-hmm. um, and you had these little rooms um, and then arranged around a kitchen, but you, they weren't flats. They were sort of little, little individual bed sits almost. Um, and everybody in my block had either gone to Godolphin School in London or Eton, apart from me and my now very, very good friend Liv. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly, I've never experienced anything like it. In the queue for supper on the first night, I, I was on my own because it was the first night, and I assumed nobody would know anybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew everybody. Mm-hmm. I tapped this guy on the shoulder. I was standing behind him in the queue, and I said, "Hi, I'm Rebecca. Um, I don't know anybody. Can I come stand with you?" And he went, and then turned back around. And that happened to me two or three times over that week. Um, and then I got to the stage where I just I kept trying to make friends. Like I really did. I did everything you're supposed to do and I just couldn't find anybody who wanted to talk to me apart from my friend Liv who wasn't into eating supper. Right. Um, so I couldn't go to, and I couldn't bring myself to go to supper on my own because I was 19 mm. and I was very scared. Mm. So I just used to buy a packet of salad and eat it alone in my room in my bed. I think that university is often touted or people often say it was the best time of my life and I made all these friends. I also, surprisingly, <laughs> I'm with you on this, had quite a lonely experience mm. of uni. Um, it, it got better for me. I moved down to London. But I didn't 
I didn't like, you know, I didn't like the, I found it quite cliquey. Yeah. I found it difficult to make friends that I wanted to be friends with. I could have gone down the route of, yeah, let's go and do yeah. that. But that wasn't me. But I couldn't bring myself to do that. I no. really couldn't. To be fair, university did get a lot better. I met my, one of my best friends, Emily, who also, we, I we, we were introduced to my mutual friend and we both had an obsession with Dylan Thomas and the and the film The Edge of Love mm-hmm. which is honestly so underrated everybody should watch it it's I still Knightley. haven't watched it you it's told so me it's so Keira Knightley yeah. and Sienna Miller and it's so beautiful yeah. and they, it's just the most brilliant film and then we sort of we, Emily and I sort of fell in I, I really believe in this idea of falling in love platonically yeah. I think it's really important I feel like I fell in love platonically with you when I, 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 I fell in love with you I was like I'm obsessed with Madeline this is just a love I want to be her and be around her all the yeah things entirely mutual but it's fair I think it's a very beautiful thing and also it's sad to reserve great love for just the, yeah. your sexual partner why yeah. do that but it also, seems so we odd. both because you got you were 26 when you yeah, got married, yeah, so we, yeah. we both got married at the exact same age yeah. and um god it's, it's like twins I mean. um and i think if you get married in your mid-20s then if you don't ever fall in love platonically then you're never gonna have any great new yeah. affection for the rest of forever and you live till let's say you live till you're 80 yeah you know that's a very long time to never fall in love again it's an insane length yes. of time it makes me really sad yeah. um okay so let's go back to beauty let me talk to you about your hair for a bit Yes. Because I know that you have lots of emotions around your hair and being blonde, but actually being brunette. Yes. Um, so naturally. actually, the the university conversation leads into it quite well, because oh. I started university with very dark blonde hair, or sorry, with very dark brown hair. So um, you were dark brown throughout your youth? So through all through my youth, I mean, yeah. I used to dye it a lot. Mm. I used to dye over it, but I would dye it sort of stupid, slightly red, stupid, slightly black. Yeah. Like, but all through all through my youth, because the difference is you can't get blonde out of a box. Like no. I, fir- I firmly believe this, unless maybe you're grey, and then you can possibly, possibly, or maybe you can get slightly lighter blonde. It's very but hard to get blonde out. Blonde of a box. out of a box, I would say, just isn't an option. No. And when you're a teenager and you don't have any disposable, I mean, having having your hair done is a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred and fifty yeah. quid. Teenager, that's not an option. No. So I always had this like yet this yearning inside me to be have um Kira Knightley's hair colour in Pirates of the Caribbean. That kind of which is like caramel honey. Mm. Like mm. it is exactly the colour of set honey. Like yeah. and I still actually think it's a very beautiful colour. It's gorgeous. Um and I and I remember talking about this to one of my friends and her being like, no, never worked. You couldn't do it. And people told me for ages and ages you can't be blonde. You can't be blonde. Your skin tone's too pink, it won't see you, you really shouldn't do it. And then when I so then in the summer between my first and second year at Bristol when I finally got some friends and I was really happy, I worked at Harrods for uh, three months. Very mixed Where? experience. In, I, so I, cho- I was in charge of uh, selling children's school uniforms. It was quite... So I applied for a job at Harrods. It was quite hard to get in. Yes. It, well, I think I think they were actually quite low on okay. staff, but also I had been a nanny, okay. so I was very well qualified to work with children. Right, so I just wanted to work on the cosmetics counter. Yeah, they were well, like, that'll allow you oh, to go that, through no, seven applications. That's very, very yeah, hard. It's very yeah, hard. Cosmetics yeah. counter is very hard, but yeah. children's school uniforms is a piece of piss. Okay. Uh, as long as you can demonstrate that you don't hate children, which right. I actually didn't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was, I was doing this, and I worked mm. there for just under three months, and I and I was getting paid really good money for the mm. first time in my life. It was sort of I think it was at eleven nine pounds an hour, eleven pounds an hour. So I saved I saved up, and I my gift to myself when I finished my three months at Harris because it was incredibly hard work mm-hmm. doing seven seven to no nine probably nine hours a day in very high heels because high heels were compulsory oh. at the time. 
uh, was very, very hard work. It was a very long commute. So the, my, my present to myself was I spent the day at Urban Retreat. Yes. Upstairs at Harrods, which is still, honestly, to this day, one of the best days of my life. Mm-hmm. So I had, because also at Harrods, if you work at Harrods, you have a 33% discount. So I booked a whole day. I think I had a massage and I had everything waxed and I had a fake tan they were so good because they had to they had to facilitate me showering off the oil from the massage mm-hmm. before my tan mm-hmm. and then I had my hair done mm-hmm. and the colourist at Urban Retreat said to me have you ever cause I, and I said I'm, I don't really know what I want to do but I'd like to change it a bit and she said well what about some blonde and I said oh no 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 I've been told I can't be blonde mm-hmm. and she was like of course you can so and this was right in the early days of balayage and right. no, nobody I knew had ever had balayage before this is what 2010 yeah like, a blocky dip dye, maybe, but beautiful yeah. hand painted balayage was not a thing I'd ever seen in real life. Yeah, and it was the mo- I mean, I it will, I'll never be able to re- recreate it again because mm-hmm. you'll never get the same effect as hand painting balayage on undyed hair. Yeah, virgin but hair has she, got this beautiful quality oh, to it. She and she ha- and she free painted these blonde highlights, all where you would have natural highlights if you'd been in Bali with the ponytail. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of around around the crown of my head, mm-hmm. uh, some at the back, a little bit at the top, and it was the most beautiful hair I've ever had in my life. And from that moment onwards, I was addicted. Mm. So I had that, and then I got back to Bristol, and six months later, I went in for another round of balayage, and a relatively heavy-handed colourist in Bristol um, slapped on a very generous number of highlights. And I was like, oh no, what a shame, you ruined the balayage. Oh no, wait, I'm, I'm blonde. blonde. Mm. Um, and then the following, so this this continued, and then the following summer I went to um, Vidal Sassoon in, um, oh, what's it called? The Street by Bond Street. Um, oh, it's a really nice, fancy... New it's not street? at all important. Okay. Uh, it's a li- little oh, street. Oh, um, I know exactly what street you mean. Uh, it runs along and it goes on to where... It's, if uh, the really fancy hotel is here, we're going to have to cut this because it's uh, very boring. What, the, Claridge's is Claridge's at the is, end. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Which is the road that leads to Claridge's? Uh, all roads should lead to Claridge's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's uh, it right, we'll have to come back to Yeah, it. yeah. South Morton Street? Mm. Is that the South one? South Morton Street. Yes, Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. One Thank of my favourite streets. Yes. Thank yeah. you for not switching off. No. <laughs> <laughs> right, so South Morton Street. Yeah. Very happy place to be. And I went in and I sat down and this this very gorgeous, very camp hairdresser said so he looked at my hair and I'd had sort of several rounds of highlights. I was a, a mid a mid blonde, dark mm. mid blonde, mm. and he said, "I think that all girls should be platinum at least one stage in their life." I love the sound. And of I him. was like, "Are you sure? Like, can I do that?" And he's like, "Well, how old are you?" And I said, oh, "I'm 22." And he's like, "What are you doing with your life?" And I was like, "Well, I've just finished university and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with my life." And he was like, "Platinum. That's what you're doing with your life. Platinum." Amazing. So he dyed it platinum, and it was. It was a start. It was proper Marilyn Monroe blonde, huh. and it was. And he cut it really like his like his very trendy now. Actually, really blunt, mm-hmm. just above my shoulders, mm-hmm. platinum, great shape, and then kind of made it very slightly wavy. And it was bloody brilliant hair. And I remember just leaving the salon. I I was I was quite slim at the time, which shouldn't affect myself myself. Mm. But it always does, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I was really tanned. And I just remember looking in there and being like, I look exactly like I I look like I feel. Right. Like, I want to be friends with that girl. That is the person I want yeah, to be. Yeah. And only a handful of times in my life have I felt that way. And it's usually been when I've had like a new dose of blonde. That's a big yes, part of it. That, but this is something that I've we've spoken about this before, but just to outline it, obviously, to everyone other than Rebecca <laughs> and me. Um, my experience or my visual references with blonde are always people like Debbie Harry, yeah. um, Bridget Bardot, very cool, very sexy, uh, 
Kate Moss drunk yes. with Pete Doherty, you know, dishevelled. Yeah. And my mum is blonde, as is your mum, right? Yes. And this beauty of blonde was always something that was in my head. And being a brunette, to me, didn't compare, couldn't compare yes. with blonde. And there is a thing in my head, I don't know why, that brunette doesn't belong in the summer. I don't know why. Yeah. But it's some, something Something in my head says you can't be brunette on the beach. And there are places where brunette... But I think, to be fair, I ruined brunette for myself by by doing terrible, terrible colouring all the way through my teenage years. When I watch Gossip Girl, I see Blair Waldorf and then I think, yes. ooh, maybe, maybe I'll go back. Maybe I do, I could especially do that. series one where her hair's yes. and quite it is just, deep and rich. It's looking. really deep and rich. And then, and, then, and then she goes to the Hamptons and she gets... Highlight. Highlight. Yeah. And that is the perfect hair, I think. Yes. I think season, that is, for episode one of season two. Yes, that is objectively yeah. Yeah, the perfect yeah. Where hair. she's going out with that, um, the, what's his name? The fake, the fake shape. No, yeah. fake no not fake shape. The fake, you know. <laughs> fake juke. I'm, juke. A, um, I'm actually British. I'm actually Lord Marcus. Lord Marcus. <laughs> the worst. It's oh, just his appalling. Hideous, but yeah. He's, he's actually sleeping with his mum. So, so yeah. That, um, but yes, my mum is a real blonde and my sister is a real blonde. Yeah. And I remember being enormously embittered that when my sister was about 15... Because your hair tends to get a bit darker around mm. that time, hormonal changes and whatnot. Mm. Uh, my mum started paying for Lucy to go to a proper salon and have proper highlights. And I remember being like, well, sorry, how is this fair? And they would go off and get their hair done properly. And I would feel so cross about it. I mean, she's right, actually. You can't. You can't do it by yeah. yourself. But, but um, did you feel a bit left out then yes, of, absolutely, their, of their gang? And I, but also I felt that they look, because my sister and my mum look quite alike, mm. and I don't look really like either of my parents. I look a bit like my dad, but I don't look like either of them, whereas my siblings look very much like them. Mm-hmm. And I swear, I think it would be a very interesting sort of psychological investigation to do into what it make, what it's like for, if you don't look like your parents and what it does to you. Because mm. I think it does, it sort of automatically cuts you out a bit. Um, yes, surprisingly, I, I too have this experience <laughs> where my mum, well, actually, I, I facially look a bit like my mum, but my sister and my brother, my mum's blonde, blue-eyed, and my sister and brother are also blonde-haired, blue-eyed, like, I mean, yeah. my sister's actually got darker eyes, but, you know, they looked kind of of a type. Yes. And I came out, you know, screaming bloody murder, black hair, yeah. you know, pink face, and my mum sort of went, well, this doesn't, she doesn't look like <laughs> the other ones. And I really think that that experience yes, of not does. looking like my mum was quite traumatising for me. I think, it's, that, I think me. it's alienating. And yeah. I think it, um, I think probably you can't help treating your child differently if they look a lot like you. Mm. Because it's, you, mm. you have that urge to, to protect your younger self and mm-hmm. to, to treat them a certain way. Yeah, maybe to nurture in a slightly yeah, different way. Yeah, I think probably you do. And also, I, I remember feeling just separate from my family a lot as a teenager anyway. Mm. Because my my siblings were so good. Like, they, my sister never rebelled, never did mm-hmm. anything naughty. Or if she did, she just sort of got away with it. It was because she had this real skill of presenting things as a fait accompli. She'd come home and she'd be like, so I'll be going to London to, uh, this weekend because my friends are party in Knightsbridge. I'll be back at 11 o'clock and you can collect me from the train station at 11.30. Oh, and there was no negotiation, and, and and they just bought it because she right. was so. Whereas with me, it would be like, oh guys, I'm, I'd ring them sort of four in the morning, and be like, I'm in a field somewhere, I don't know where I am. Please, will you come find me? Yeah, and I just didn't have that sort of elegance that Lucy had about her. But she just got away with things. I get the impression from you that your parents were always quite supportive of of the three of you. Oh yeah, they are. Yeah. They are. I think probably objectively the best parents in the world. Like, yeah, they. There's nothing. I mean, I announced I was going to be a sex writer. And they didn't right. even bat an eye. Didn't they? Did they read your stuff? Um, no. Not not the stuff about my personal experience of sex, which I think is probably the right thing did to do. Did you ask them not to, or did they No, I think to? we just mutually agreed that it was not practical for them to read stuff about my sex life. Okay. Because I wouldn't want to read about their sex life. Let's move on to your sex life. Yes, let's. Um, so, <laughs> when 
so when you started out, I was about to say, but when, <laughs> when you started out having sex, um, you had a lot of experiences that were, you know, sort of feel made to be written about. Yes. Lots of different things. Um, ha- tell me about going from Catholic schoolgirl mm. to being in a polyamorous relationship. So, honestly, I, when I tell this, I, yeah. I think, honestly, I did it on purpose because I used to read books about people in the in the 40s and 50s who had these incredible patchwork lives. And I think I, I sort of artificially recreated it. Mm. Basically, so I finished an all-girl Catholic boarding school in mm-hmm. the July. Mm-hmm. And in the August, I moved to London on my own. Mm-hmm. I was 18. Where did, where um, did you so move I to? So I moved to Chelsea, okay. because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and I found a nannying job. That's very Kate Middleton. I know, isn't it? Yeah. So I, so I moved so I moved to, che- I moved to this big, big, big house in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And I had this little garret room, because I was the nanny. Yeah. So I was effectively staff. Yeah. Um, but it, in, if, you're, if you're going to try and get into trouble, nannying is a great job because well this one was I started at two and I finished at seven. Oh great. I mean I mean I got paid eighty quid a week so it wasn't a lot of money but eighty quid a week when you're eighteen mm. and and quite good looking. And you have somewhere to live. And you have somewhere to live is actually yeah. enough money to get in quite a lot of trouble so mm. I'm not trying to do drugs mm. which I wasn't because I was too high on my own sort of freedom. Yeah. Um but the the juxtaposition of having gone from so what six weeks before I moved there no twelve weeks before I moved there mm. I had to ask permission to go to the bathroom right. and um, you know I could get in trouble for having my phone out and then suddenly I was living in the central freedom. London with completely as long as I was in the house between twelve and seven and gave these children supper and put one of them to bed I could do anything I wanted so this was your gap year this is my gap year right. well at the time I thought it was going to be my life because I, I decided right. I wasn't going to university right obviously that didn't turn out mm-hmm. uh, but I was th- I was going to make my fortune that year um, so I, so as a I, nanny I, yeah there's nanny. Okay. As, as a playwright obviously. oh right okay fine because why wouldn't they have put yeah, yeah, yeah. I honestly genuinely believed that within the year I would have had a production at the Royal Court I was convinced um, well, I, I, you know, I don't think that's totally out of the realm of possibility, <laughs> given that, like, you had a column at, like, 22, but go on. Um, so I used to go and hang around the Royal Court as if there's somebody would see me wearing a hat and looking interesting in the bookshop and be like, you, you're a writer. Yeah. You should write something. Isn't it funny, though? So just on that, though, how you think, when you're younger, you think that, uh, I think American films are so bad for this, but you think that there's a way a writer yes. should look and behave. Yes, and, abs- and I, had, I had my big rim glasses and my yeah. felt, my dark green felt hat mm-hmm. and a trench coat. Yeah, and you were interesting yes I was interested yeah. and, and I had because my whole thing was what I wanted to be interested I wanted so badly to be interesting mm. um, and actually I think it probably was because I was this very odd teenage <laughs> girl wandering around London yeah trying, but trying you want to, to wear it you want people to see yes that. I wanted people to yeah. think I was fascinating yeah. so um, I had always had an interest in sort of relatively unusual sex mm-hmm. um, and I had joined all these sort I like of... the way you make that sound like ornithology <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've taken a sexual anthropologist I was, yeah. a horny little, I was a horny little bastard yeah. basically I, I, I really wanted to try BDSM and so I because that because it was 2009 I went mm-hmm. on the internet and found people who were also interested in that mm-hmm. and this uh, very nice couple invited me over for supper um, and then I sort of ended up in a relationship with them. But wait, when you went over for supper, do you remember what you wore? Yes, I do, absolutely. So this was the summer that is, I realised that men, all men, really like knee socks. So I wore knee socks all summer. Now, okay. I have no idea why, how I worked this out, but honestly... Weird, like Alicia Silverstone in yes. Clueless. So I wore over the knee. So on this date, but this was the outfit I wore pretty much all summer. Yeah, I had these orange Mary Jane shoes, mm. which wore through in the sole eventually. Mm. Black knee socks, mm. a very short denim skirt with a vote for Obama badge on it. Right, because my friend had been in America when Obama's campaign was on. Very right. tight black t-shirt. Right, um, and then massive hair. 
Right. And that was pretty much, I wore a version of that for an entire summer. Okay. Um, which Because I thought it was the coolest outfit in the entire world. And at this point, I was still really pale because I hadn't discovered a fake tan. Okay. Which we all come on to. Yes. Um, this was, that was, that was the last vestige of my sort of innocence was that I was still really pale. Okay. Before, before the blonde of the tan arrived. Um, so yeah, I went for dinner with them and I ended up in a relationship with him. Yeah. Uh, so she had another partner. Uh-huh. He had me, um, as there were four of us. And we would sort of spend time, we didn't really all sleep together but we all spent time together a lot of the time right. and I had time alone with him and I'm alone with them hello, hello. and um, Monty's just yeah, coming Monty's coming Monty, Monty the beagle pointer hello oh boy, hi why yeah. are you so gorgeous <laughs> um, so yes we, we did that and that was four and a half years of my life um, and we you know, went to but someone who wanted to experiment though that's actually you were able to settle down yeah. but then I guess it was an open relationship so I did do I made lots of other poor choices fine um, and we did lots of sort of going to fetish clubs and going on holiday and um, lots of experimenting with sort of public sex And in terms of public sex mm. fetish parties yes my thoughts on that is what would I wear? What would people think of my body? Well, that honestly, that was the most fun bit. Okay. Because half of the point of this is getting dressed up. Right. But in terms of the way you feel about... Because bearing yourself... So I, okay, I have this thing every year where I go on a beach. And for... I am not someone who believes in beach body or whatever mm. it is. But I definitely have this thing before I think I should definitely get a wax. Yeah. I'm a bit wobbly... I know the first two days I'm going to be slightly aware of my yes. body and thereafter I will be fine. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, the idea of basically wearing a bikini, uh, uh, sorry, my underwear in public yes. in broad daylight does phase me. Regard- but, it, but it feels enormously strange the first yeah. time that you take off your clothes in front of a huge amount of people on the beach because you would right. never usually do that. It's exactly. A it's a very odd thing to do. And in really the broadest daylight yes. you could possibly yes. ask for. So... The idea of going to a party and then taking off more than that, mm. and also people assessing you as a sexual mm. being. But actually, fetish clubs are probably one of the places where my body confidence was most built. Because to start with, the getting ready was so exciting, and it would, we would sort of go over to somebody's house and get ready for a couple of hours and drink lots of champagne. Um, and then your outfit would be all about, your outfit would tell people more than just what you look like. It was about what you were into and who you were. So I used to tend to wear a sort of a proper fully iron boned corset. And if you've never worn one of those, it's the most I have never worn one. Where did you get oh my it God. from? So this one was from a place called What Katie Did. Um, okay. And, they, and they're still going and they still sell them. I had like one of those half corsets, but I've always been desperate to own a corset for the, non-fetish they reasons. Were, but, they know. were just the, they are the most astonishing garments in the entire yeah. world. They, the, the things they do to your posture. Yeah. So I put, it was it was sort of dark blue with a black lace overlay. Yeah. And it would take, so my, I think my waist at that point was, 29 inches mm. uncorseted mm-hmm. and I think it was 24 inches corseted Bloody which considering that I was probably an E cup yeah, yeah. and had size 12 hips so you very pronounced so hourglass like, it, quite, like, quite, like my, my partner at the time could almost get his hands around my waist like wow. it was an astonishing shape isn't that what um, um, Vivian Lee used to want yeah exactly yeah. I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't quite there okay. but I was, it was not that far off Yeah, um, and a huge huge clouds of hair and oodles of makeup and loads of body glitter right. and, and fishnets because you, no, you never get to wear fishnets so you're kind of playing a part exactly to an extent and you get to wear a costume in a way and you get to wear things that you would never get to wear otherwise right. okay. um, and then when you get there 
the the spectrum of bodies that you get in a fetish club is huge you get very fat people very thin people mm. very beautiful people very ugly people that there is all all life is there so it's really level playing field it's a very level playing field you'll yeah. never be the least attractive person there and you probably won't be the most attractive person there either and also it's all very dark mm-hmm. it's 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 lit sexually on purpose. That it's designed great. to make you laugh. And <laughs> yeah. honestly, I, if you said to me, would you rather go to a fetish club or go on a beach right now? I'd go in a fetish club every time. Oh, really? Yeah, because you've got all this armour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and you've you've chosen who you want to be and you've dressed up and there's music and also you're usually a bit drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, all of it's kind of there to support you. So you're going out with this man, you go to Bristol. Yes. Uh, tell me at which point your relationship with the in the relationship changed and also your relationship with yourself because I'm presuming that how old were you when you went to Bristol? Nineteen. Nineteen, okay. So nineteen to twenty two, twenty three mm. is quite a big shift yes. in who you are. So what was happening to you then? So nineteen to th- my relationship with my ex partner, the polyamorous relationship mm was very strange during the time that I had depression at Bristol because he did not see it as a legitimate mental health issue. He felt that I was being needy. Right. Um, so that, and, and my relationship... Very helpful of him. Very helpful. And my and I gained quite a lot of weight. I stopped bothering... And I think, actually, when I stopped bothering to put makeup on, that's a very good sign that I'm not feeling great. Because mm-hmm. uh, usually my real joy about going out is having half an hour to sit down and, yeah. and, and look after myself and put my face on. Uh, whereas I stopped. I love that you just said that. put my face know, on. I'm old, it's, it's like a cute yeah. old fashioned. Yeah, it's very but it, is, it feels like that. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's it's also put your face on is an expression I like because it suggests that when you do your makeup, you're coming, you're, you're creating a version of you that you want to create, yes. and that feels like you exactly, rather than trying a to, distortion or yes. trying to look like someone else. Exactly. Like, yeah. And I and I think I I have sort of different set looks that I do. For the different yes. person I want to be, yeah. Like whether it's I, whether I wear liquid eyeliner or whether I wear um, co- like sort of just normal eyeliner, those mm-hmm. are two very different versions yeah, yeah. of me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, yeah that was so yeah, so that was very strange. Then I made some friends, and mm-hmm. then I moved in with my friends, and mm-hmm. we had this gorgeous little house opposite this amazing pub in Bristol, mm-hmm. and we spent every single day at the pub. And I re- and, and I and I lost some weight, and I was properly blonde. And I discovered fake tan. Which fake tan? Uh, so this is this is one of my hero products. One of your hero products. Um, so this is the classic Saint Tropez eight hours overnight. Okay. And when I when I said this to you earlier, you said, "God, that's so that's so well fashioned." Well, it's just but, such a nightmare. I remember doing it. But I love it. So yeah. there's nothing I find more comforting than the biscuity smell of fake tan on my skin and getting into bed. Mm-hmm. And then waking, it's like Christmas. It's like waking up and knowing that you're going to wake up in the morning and be brown. And your sheets will also And my sheets will be ruined. But, but I, was, I was a student. Yeah, I didn't, get, I didn't give a shit about my sheets. Uh, but also I used to sleep in, I used to have sort of black full length thing I would sleep in. Did you in. have the mitt? Yes, but uh, it took me a long time to work out that the mitt was a good idea. I used to right. my bare hands. I mean, anybody who knows me, who's known me for a long time will tell you, I am the worst fake tanner in the world. Right. It doesn't matter how hard I've worked. Yeah. Some, like, even at my wedding there was a streak there. Yeah. Because I, I just... Don't know how Did you ever have it done professionally? Occasionally, but I think if I'd had it done professionally every time I wanted it done, I would have been bankrupt. Yeah, it was mega it's, expensive. It's, it's, I went it's like forty quid. Yeah, I went and had a professional centre pay one, and I remember they you left and you looked like someone had smeared yes. poo on you, and you used to. And I, you I know, looked like Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, well, the first time I had when I went, when I had mine done at Harrods, I yeah. literally like I thought I was transracial. Yeah, and yeah. I remember getting home, my boyfriend at the time laughing and laughing and laughing because I had this very quite blonde hair with yeah, this yeah, yeah. teeth. But it was skin. at that point almost not a status symbol, but it was as yes. well. Like, 
similarly to getting lip gloss on a mm. you know on a on a cup you would think i've got this fake tan on i have to protect it yes. i've been fake tan it feels like, like a really I nice a brown person yeah a nice ritual yeah almost I, it, but i think yeah. it, i still see it as a ritual it, it's a very i usually do i mean i'm actually very pent but it's a sort of some because i i get to a point where i've got so much on i have to mm. get rid of it all before i start again uh, but it's usually my sort of sunday night fit how do you get rid of myself. it exfoliate and then I let myself have a couple of days of I get sort of fake tan freckles so you fake do you fake tan during the winter even if you're not yes getting your body out at all times your whole body yeah god that's incredible I I often don't bother doing my back actually because I I can't reach it can't see it but arms legs face torso because also I genuinely feel better and happier at my body when I'm when I'm brown but yeah, so the, so the, com- the massive confidence boost of my second year of uni going mm-hmm. into my third year of uni, that mm-hmm. was that was all about fake tan and boys and booze mm-hmm. and chain smoking outside the pub and... So, okay, so how choices. did you go from bad choices, fake tan, newly blonde Rebecca, to, you know, so I've got a list of the places that you very kindly furnished me with, of places that you write... Um, columns for Telegraph, Metro Online. You've written for Marie Claire, Guardian, Sunday, Saturday Telegraph, Stylist, Glamour, Independent. You've been on TV, Sky News, ITV, Women's Hour, Channel Five News. Your novel's coming out next year. Yes, Perfect Liars. Called Perfect Liars. Called Perfect Liars. Um, <laughs> Perfect Liars. <laughs> and you've done all of that in what five five years? And I mean, that's like those are the highlights. So, what did did you suddenly get ambition massively? Did you go from I'll do the odd bit of TV and I'll be a nanny and I'll have a lot of sex to boom, I'm going really... Because you've really gone for it. So I left Bristol. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a 2-2 mm-hmm. because the University of Bristol Drama Department decided not to ratify my 59.333 reoccurring to a 60. Okay. Not still better That's very that annoying. But I think so. Anyway, um, means that it phoned me up and asked me for my... But also very cheering for anyone who yes, doesn't... Yes, please, please get a 2-2. They're wonderful. They yeah. work really well. People like and them. And you won't be a failure. Yeah, exactly. In fact, Throughout school, what you really get doesn't mean anything yes, apart from getting you to the next stage. Yeah, exactly. That's all it, all yeah. it means, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But anyway, so I left. I left with a two-two under a bit of a cloud because mm-hmm. I had not done hugely well, and basically I missed this big final presentation to go to a job interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said they had said if you if you miss it, you'll fail, and that'll mean you don't go a two-one. And I had said I'm absolutely convinced I'm going to get this job. It was a graduate scheme for GWT, an advertising agency. And I was like, oh well, def- I'm just going to go to the job interview because mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll get it. Obviously, I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I left, yeah, under a bit of a cloud, not mm-hmm. really sure what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I signed up with a temping agency because what I want, I want to do back in London. I'd spent most of my uh, university career going back and forth to London and I wanted to be back here. And some friends of mine were putting together uh, a house share. So they had got hold of this enormous, crumbling mansion mm-hmm. in North London. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a spare, tiny little bedroom going. And they said, well, you know, if you pay £400 a month, you can move in. You don't need, you don't need deposit. So I thought, well, by hook or by crook, I'm not staying at home. Because my parents live in a very beautiful house in a relatively boring part of the country. Um, where it's, it's gorgeous, but there's not a lot to do if you're there on your own. Yeah. And um, at that age, you just yes, want to tear the world up. Exactly. And, and, I, and I was 22 and I felt very, I felt like I had a lot to bring to the world. Mm. I wasn't actually right about that, but mm. still. So I move into this huge crumbling mansion owned by a Greek billionaire who defected to Greece. Interesting. Um, with this extraordinary group of people, um, none of whom I can now currently speak to because it did transpire that they were predominantly mad. 
So I get a job as a receptionist mm. uh, because I need some money. Yeah. Uh, I'm the only person living in that house who works. So having to go to work every day is quite a stress. Um, but that was actually a very happy time. Like I was, I was very, very good at being on reception and mm-hmm. I loved it. I, I enjoyed greeting people. I, I was good at it. I was friendly. Um, and I got into a very reception-y frame of mind. I started dressing like what I thought reception was supposed to dress like. Mm-hmm. Lots of Peter Pan collars and jumpers and little, little flippy skirts. I um, got a job as a um, PA and I bought, God, so many pencil skirts. Yes, because what else are you supposed to do? Yeah. How else could you dress? Yeah. And it was a really, it was a, it was, there was a free fridge of Diet Coke, which made me very happy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was sort of quite, uh, but I was also very frustrated and all my friends were starting to do better and better. And um, I was seeing people from my course at Bristol, because I did English and drama, mm-hmm. people from my drama course starting to have sort of tiny amounts of success. And I begrudged them it a great deal. Um, and I was ambitious. So I got a job in a PR agency, which was horrific. I mean, I cannot put too fine a point on how bad it was. I got fired eventually because I didn't sit up straight enough and I didn't smile enough. Wow. Uh, this is a PR agency where they, they, they only uh, worked on calling. Okay. So you had to you got in at, you had to be in at eight and you finished at six and you had to call people all day. Oh, awful! And oh. I, as a journalist, now know how much I hate being called. Mm-hmm. Being called is the worst. Yeah. So why it feels a bit of an invasion? It's like, an invasion. Yeah. And also, you're always busy and whatever. Yeah. If it's a good press release, you'll reply to it on an email. Mm-hmm. Like it's a street, I, I tell this to PRs all the time. Like it's not a good way to contact people yeah. unless you have a relationship with them anyway. Yeah. So. This was awful. I lasted nine days before they fired me. And I was absolutely crushed because I sort of, I felt like I had always assumed I would come into my own in my 20s when I was in London having a career. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't coming into my own. I was flailing. I was doing really badly. I wasn't making very much money. Um, And I was miserable. So then my temping agency, uh, they're called Anderson Horan. If you ever need to be a temp, they're a bloody great agency. They sent me on this dreamy job to an estate agency in Knightsbridge. um, Sorry, in Mayfair where all I had to do was sit in the window, looking quite pretty, make three cups of coffee a day, and answer the phone. It was love. It was exactly what I needed after this horrible job. Uh, yeah. And, and I dressed, and I had this, you know, I, and, they, and they loved that I was so blonde. I find so it, sorry, I just find it so fascinating. It's just occurred to me that you've done all these jobs, so nanny, um, receptionist, receptionist, PA, PA, all these kind parents. of, yeah, all these kind of very traditionally, like, uh, Jobs where you'd assume a woman didn't have a voice, yes. kind of had to look a certain way. Yeah. There's a uniform, expected to look pretty, yes. be nice, etc. And yet, inside is this but I think that's very why. articulate, very opinionated woman. But I think that's exactly why. And actually, I get accused a lot sometimes when I have TV or radio debates about issues. I'm told that I'm just another middle class woman who is uh, having hysteria over things that working class women don't struggle with. And actually, I've done a lot of shit jobs in my life. And I have been treated like shit a lot of times. Not not mm. by... not Well, actually, in person, personally and professionally, mm. but I've been professionally treated like shit a lot. And yeah. I have been assumed to be stupid. I've been groped by people who I work for. I've been treated very, very poorly by people who are paying my wages. And before you had the validation, possibly, of being, you know, well-known journalist... How did you respond to those things? I was incredibly angry and I had no recourse. Okay. I, I, found, I think I used to tweet about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I had sort of 200 followers, all yeah. of whom were people I knew in real life who didn't really care. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say the greatest... To, and I think a real driving force towards doing what I do now is wanting to be able to force people to listen to me. Right. And people and now, whether they like... Well, I suppose you can turn the telly off or you can close the article. But 
people are I my, you my have I have a platform to scream about the things that make me angry. Yeah. And yeah. this is why sexism and workplace discrimination are things that I get so angry about mm. because they are th- because people don't realise how miserable it is to come home with bleeding feet because you're considered a less valuable employee mm-hmm. if you don't have high heels on. Yeah. Or to be scared to go I, when I worked in a pub I was terrified because my boss used to put his hand either side of my of my torso where my boobs are and then slide it down to my arse. And every single time he went past me, and people, if if you've never experienced that, if either because you're a bloke or because you're a very lucky woman, then you have no idea what it's how stressful it is to dread going to work because you're going to be sexually harassed, and that's why this stuff is so important to me. So I was doing this very voiceless job, mm. um, and I was on the and I was on uh, Twitter, and I saw that Radhika Sanghani, who is a wonderful journalist and who was at the time working at the Telegraph. Um, tweeted she was doing a thing about getting fired and she said anybody can I interview somebody who's been fired so I got in touch with her and said oh I got fired recently after nine days told her the whole story um, and she said oh can I interview and we had a, we had a chat on the phone and then she said oh and I and I said to her actually I've written a blog post about it because at this point I had this blog again because I was so voiceless and so frustrated mm-hmm. and I really wanted to be able to talk about it so I wrote this blog post about getting fired and actually the response was pretty good like I had people people's attention mm-hmm. and so and, and she rang me and she said um uh, listen we really like this blog post can we run it as an article on the telegraph and from and pretty much from then on it's it's been I, I, the the luck has been astonishing they ran that and then um so that was sort of serendipity i mean i know that you no, did that was some, that was well, no but you've written the blog post so it's not it's not like you hadn't put in work but what i mean is what you were published for was sort of serendipity yes. like you'd written this thing da, da, da. but you've continued on that course and the course of sort of writing about your experiences and championing, I want to say women's causes, but, you know, yeah. things that affect women primarily. I mean, I think because I'm a selfish person and I think <laughs> I, I write about things that affect me and they happen to also no, I mean, affect anybody else like me. But almost everyone writes about their yes. own experiences. But I just mean, did you at any point think, you know what, maybe I'll write, I mean, I know you've now written a novel, but what, what, did you always want to do that? Did it feel right to you straight away? Did you? Yeah, I never had any end to be a... Pro, a journalist with a capital J. I never mm-hmm. wanted to go to war zones. Right. I never, I, I never wanted to have to knock on doors after people have died. Like I never wanted to be that kind of journalist. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the sort of um, Giles Corrin, Catelyn Moran, um, that kind of that the kind of journalism that I used to that I grew up reading in the Sunday Times style magazine. Yeah. That's who yeah. I wanted to be. I never had any yen to sort of discover anything or or unleash or, mm-hmm. or any kind of investigative. No interest in that at all. Yeah, because it's not very fun. And I, and I would still say I consider myself more of a writer than a journalist. Right. Um, I mean, I get told sometimes that I shouldn't call myself a journalist because I don't have any qualifications in it. So with Twitter and Twitter and you, I'm not going to say Instagram because Instagram you don't use as yeah, much not in such the same Instagram, way. I think because um, my friends, my actual friends, follow mm-hmm. me on Instagram and I feel like they will either judge me or be bored by me, whereas mm. Twitter, everybody's everyone who follows me has opted to follow me and twitter's more about words is that fair yeah. Tw- more about words and also you i feel like i can put up 30 tweets in a day but i feel like 30 instagram is a bit excessive okay but on twitter you so you 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 know you you're outspoken you say what you yes. think and people very often say awful things back to you yes but people attack you based on the way you look quite a lot yes do you remember the first time that happened to you 
Yes, the first time it happened, uh, well, the first time it ever happened was in the comments on one of my Telegraph articles, and that was incredibly hurtful, but at least I'd sort of, I had chosen to read the comments, so I felt like I had responsibility for that. Whereas when, so I had a Twitter spat, which turned into a into a full-on in-person debate with a guy called Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a sort of famous troll, basically. Mm. The first time we ever had a row, my God, the things he put. I woke up the next morning We'd had a spat. It wasn't particularly nasty. I hadn't been horrible. To, I, we, neither of us had been that horrible. Mm. But his followers were vicious. And I woke up the next morning to stuff about how I was disgusting and morbidly obese and a land whale and hideous and uh, uh, like uh, and comments about how I would be smelly and ugly and bad in bed and nobody would ever want to have sex with me. And why was I worried about rape when nobody would ever bring themselves to rape me? And then people saying, I'm going to rape you. It's not a lot of consistency with these people either. Mm. Um, and it was it was really genuinely horrific. And the only thing people would say to me is, don't read it, don't read it, don't read it. So were you telling people? Because there's something yeah. about getting being criticised sometimes where you don't want to tell people because, you know, if you feel there's a kind of yes. truth or if you're nervous about it or even if you don't but it's yeah there's a degree of sort of passing it on and then feeling like it take it becomes a bigger Absolutely. thing and i think so but my my thing was i sort of <laughs> i would retweet the worst of it with sarcastic comments right so that it was like i was in on the joke even though like, like it wasn't hurting even though it was hurting enormously um and then it became a sort of self-loathing thing i would go to um sort of things like barry's boot camp which is a very intense exercise thing and i'd be on the treadmill thinking if i keep running hard enough then people won't be able to say that to me anymore and then i realized and i know actually i was i was really quite i mean my weight tends to fluctuate but there have been lots of times where i've been really quite slim and people have still been horrible mm. um and that so it doesn't change it, nothing changes it nothing will ever change it and, and being in the public eye i think that that's something that is universal doesn't yes. matter what you look like exactly yeah. but also once you've been three pounds overweight once people will always call you fat and that will never go away like it wouldn't matter how thin i got also do you think it doesn't go away in your head too no it will never it, it would never i will always i mean i i i was bulimic as a teenager which weirdly i managed to skip during yeah the whole did yes i was bulimic as a teenager um in not a, in a bid to get thin uh, in a bid to get thin, not cripplingly so but you know there's no good way to no good way to be bulimic mm. i've been either on a diet or binging every day since i was probably 12 I mean, I've never had a healthy attitude to my body. And actually, sometimes when people send me messages saying, you're a fucking disgusting land whale and I wish you'd get harpooned, I reply saying, like, you know I'm a person, right? Like, you know mm-hmm. I'm an actual mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. who panics every time they eat a biscuit and, and goes three days without eating anything other than meat because I'm trying to lose weight. Yeah. And and when you have that conversation with a person, usually they are massively apologetic. And what I find is the people who are sending these comments are... They, they don't feel that they have a voice and they feel totally smothered by not being able to speak out so they say these things to get a reaction and actually if you in, if you engage them in the conversation they're usually relatively re- reasonable where are you now in the way you feel about the way you look so i go back and forward right now like this week very bad um because i was on hol- i went to greece for a couple of weeks ago uh, and had an amazing holiday and ate everything and drank huge amounts and I came back and felt like I hadn't gained any weight and then suddenly it seemed to all mm. kind of come on the same that time. always it's happens very unfair yeah. it does that yeah um so right and, and right now things that are usually all right are a little bit on the tight side um lo- this time last year when I got married I was really good I felt really good and I think the the, the thing is I tend to be around a size 14 uh, basically my good is is a size 14 mm. my bad is a size 16 
my grate is a size 12. I haven't size for a long time. But when I said, how do you feel about the way you look, you immediately went to weight. So is that Yeah, thing... oh no, it's, it's only in the weight. Okay, so you don't have any other qualms. You don't... No, do Your you skin what? is... Yeah, so my skin, I'm, I've always been incredibly lucky. I've had about 11 spots in my entire life. Okay. I don't tend to get spots ever, mm-hmm. and that's fantastic. Um, I feel, I'm happy with my face. I think I have a nice face. Mm-hmm. I like my hair, like gen- apart from hairiness. My- I mean, like I only say I that because that's my personal. I wish I, I'm, I mean, I'm ve- I'm lucky because I'm very I'm very blonde. You're very hair for it, yeah. My, um, but then I have a skin condition called you might have to kerastasis pillar. Yeah, KP. I, I can't KP. pronounce it either. Uh, we're all my we're all my most of my hair is naturally in grow. Yeah. Um. So I have little tiny dots all over my thighs and sort of basically all over my body, but they're very tiny, and that's partially why the fake tan is such an obsession. Right. Because when I'm tan, when I've got fake tan, you can't. Have see I it. given you Amelia rate to use? I'm going to have to dig that out for you. Yeah. It's quite a good body moisturiser okay. that has inbuilt like acids to get rid of KP. Because this is the thing, is that if you, if you work hard to it, you can get rid of it. And yeah. I've never really been very very good about it. The, the fake tan's been a sort of short-term thing. Yeah, it's like putting makeup on almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and I think that that's probably the sort of thing that would bother other people, but has mm-hmm. never really bothered me. So I think I'm very, I'm very freckly and moly. Mm-hmm. And I think there are people for whom that would be a problem, but I've always been very comfortable with it. I think maybe Claire Boleyn was very freckly and moly. Was she? she? Yeah. One of the reasons they called her a witch. I know that. Yeah. They don't, they don't put it in the paintings because... Um, right. Because it wasn't Because it wasn't considered sexy. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's funny. It's only, it's only other way with me. Everything else I'm always very comfortable right. with. Right. So that's Actually, shape-wise, I really like my shape. I just... I But I think what's nice is the older I get, mm-hmm. the 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 narrower the expectation I have on myself is. Mm. It used to be that it was always about I've got to get down to a size 8. And then it got to, okay, well, I'll be a 12. And now, actually, as long as I am a 14 and I fit into all my size 14 clothes, I'm fine. It's funny how um, an arbitrary label can make you mm. think I should fit into you. Totally pointless, isn't it? Yeah. It's a different size everywhere. But I also have the thing where, well, my clothes are a certain size, so I want yes. to be able to fit into them. Yeah. And I think also everybody has their... I, I have a theory that most people have a sort of... A, a happy size, a safe size, and a scary size. And yeah. actually, my my safe size, my happy size is some people's scary size. Yeah. And that's and everyone's allowed to have that. Yeah. But yeah, for me, a sixteen is scary, a fourteen is safe, and a twelve is yeah. is a happy place. Yeah. I mean, tw- I haven't been twelve for a long for quite a long time. Um, but it's I um my my husband and I started to talk about having children, mm-hmm. and it's the last thing I've got a kit. Well, I also have to stop smoking, but I, I'm hoping that I won't want to smoke when I'm pregnant. No, um, and also I hope I'm thinking pregnancy will probably be a good enough reason not to. But the last thing I've really got a kick in my life. I feel good about everything else. I've got to get my relationship and my weight sorted out because I cannot pass on to my children this this way of punishing myself by eating and then punishing myself by starving. And this constant cycle of either on a diet or putting on weight. I, I've got to learn to be the kind of person who's roughly the same weight all the time. And I think if you're raised by somebody, and it's usually the mum, because mm. women tend to have this issue more. Mm. If you're raised by somebody who has their own demons in terms of weight, mm-hmm. it's so, so hard to not pass those on. Yeah. And I think my mum did her absolute best not to make me neurotic about weight. But I think that it's almost impossible not to if you are in any level yourself. Mm. Mm. Um but I, it's sad because I think it is the the dominant topic of conversation and thought and reflection of my life to the, to date, this date, to my weight. But what's interesting is, despite all this feeling that you've had about your weight, you know, you look at your life and your CV, as it were, and it's all amazing. Like, I mean, you're an outstanding human being. And so it's That's funny that... No, you are, but and and not at all that marriage means you've made it in any sense. No, but but I you have, are yeah yeah you have a partner who adores you, yeah. fancies you. So it's 
interesting that that still is there how can you literally i mean i have got literally everything i ever dreamed of with yeah. the exception of a very much like a georgian house in kentish town yes um but apart from owning property, and maybe an annuity <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah apart li- apart from apart from a house i have everything i've ever dreamed of yeah and yet i can still wake up in the morning like i tried to dress all this morning and it was too tight on my boobs and i was just it just, re- it just upset me for the rest of the day it's insane how is that possible? Yeah, it's insane. But that's it because you can have, you can know, you can know things. You could give the advice to someone else, but this sense of inhabiting your body and it having some hold over you yes. is it, very strange, and it, yeah. it really seems to prevail. When I asked you about doing this podcast, one of the things you said when you came in was that you had, you could have made your list. You were thinking about the products that you wanted to talk about, and your list could have been entirely perfume. Yes. And, and I could have done it five times over. Yeah, and I was surprised is maybe the wrong word because when you come round to mine, you always say, you always spray my perfumes in the loo and you always say, <laughs> I like smelling them. So I kind of knew that you were perfumey mm. and you've never smelled bad to my nose. <laughs> but I didn't realise that you had this, like this a fragrance passion you yeah, for yeah, perfume. Yeah. So tell me about the outstanding ones to you and also maybe a bit about your relationship with smell. So I Scent, have... Maybe uh, smell. <laughs> Um, I have a tendency to buy a perfume whenever there's a major change in my life. Right. So first perfume I ever had was CK1. My dad brought it back from a business trip to Texas, mm-hmm. which was incredibly, and I loved it, and it was so cool. Yeah. And I still love that smell to this day because it's very clean and very neutral. Mm. Um, the other one that he bought me when I was really young was Tommy Girl, which is such a nice fragrance. I would still wear it now. That's such a throwback. It's, I haven't honestly, thought about that. I really like really, Tommy Girl. It's, it's quite juicy, right? I, I, it's kind of almost like um, I'm sorry, it's almost got like a powder. It's like clean and powdery, yeah. and also citrusy. Like all those smells, though. Yeah, like they exactly. all kind of have that in common, don't yeah. they? It's like, yeah, it's like a really lovely. Like you've had a shower and you'd feel fresh mm. and clean wearing it. And also, so, it kind of recalls like American girls yes, with blue eyes and a twinkly, exactly. t- toned legs. And when and like I was wearing, and when I was going through my sort of Ralph Lauren cable knit jumper and little and skinny jeans phase, that was mm. exactly who I wanted to be. Um, and that was and that was who I should have smelled like an like. Abercrombie and Fitch model. exactly that's exactly who I wanted to be mm. actually that's a that's a smell that always yeah. takes me back God, fierce yeah. about yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what all boys were supposed to smell like and the smell of those shops as well yes all, like, all, overwhelming overwhelming awful yeah um, but yeah so then so then when I was about 14 my best friend and I decided that based on magazines we should have a signature scent yes something that I am now always very confused about and very torn about because I love the idea of a, a smell reminding somebody of me yes but I also hate the idea of being corseted by just having one. My friend Abby has a signature scent. and I, Oh, God, I don't even know what it is. It's a blue perfume. But recently, Miller Harris made one that's over there. And I sprayed it on my arm and I was like, that's Abby. <laughs> and it was so yeah. nice. And it made me feel like yeah. I'd seen her even though, you know. So the, yeah. a girl I shared a dormitory with at boarding, at boarding school used to wear. And this is an odd perfume for a 14-year-old. Very, um, the Agent Provocateur. Um, one it comes in a pink teardrop drop shaped bottle I don't know really musky and really sexy okay and it always reminds me of her and yeah. also weirdly my best friend from school was uh, used to wear J-Lo glow yeah she's actually a lovely smell um, and that as soon as I smell that straight back with her yeah 
So, so, so my signature scent, uh, inverted quotes, was very irresistible Givenchy. Okay. Which is, came in sort of pink, it looked like a, it looked like a, root, like a stick of rhubarb. It yes, and it's bottle. got little nobbles on yes. the bottle. Yeah. And it was very, and it was... Nobbles? And it was... Is that a word? No. It's, it's a bit twisted. Yeah. So, yeah. and it was, and Liv Tyler was the face of it. And yes. Liv Tyler was the only non-thin person, like, she is very thin, but she was the least thin actress that existed at the time. She kind of, she looks strong. She looked like Rather she might than... possibly have been more of an eight than a six. Yes, yeah. Um, and I, and for that reason, I adored her because I was also not, not tiny. Mm. So anything she put her name to, I wanted to be involved with. Right. Um, hence, hence wearing that. And actually it is a, and it is a lovely smell. It's quite strong. It's very sweet. What I would say is I found it the other day and I thought I'd put it on and I, it does expire after 14 years. Mm. So don't, don't put it on if you've had a bottle for 14 years because my God, it's that. What did it smell like? Sort of like fermented rhubarb. Disgusting. Yeah, really terrible. Okay. So that so that was that one. And then when I left school, um, I bought uh, Daisy by Marc Jacobs. Yeah. Which I now can't smell. I can't. I can't do. It's too. It's too yeah. much. When I smell it, it's too much nostalgia. Yeah. Because literally, as soon as I smell it, it's like I'm being whacked in the face mm. with every single moment. It's like listening to Tayo Cruz. It's because that was. Yeah. The, he was number one all time that year. It's too much. I can't cope with it. Mm. But that was being in London. That was having sex for the first time. Dating for the first time, going to all these fetish clubs, making all these friends. That's mm-hmm. that smell. And then when I went to university, I bought one from Space NK. They have a range of what they're called. They come in these sort of pumpkin-shaped bottles. Um, oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's um, Tocca. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I bought a Tocca one, which I never really bonded with, but I think that's because that was during that was the mm-hmm, bad year. Mm-hmm. So that smells like sadness to me now. Yeah. Um, and then when I turned twenty one, my sister said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna pick a fragrance for you for being twenty one because that's a big move." So she picked a Lam uh, uh, by Dolce and Gabbana, which yeah. is lovely. It's very fruity and mm. very, and and very light, and it's very pale pink. And it was part of, and funnily enough, they retired all of the rest of that range, bar that one and one other. Oh. And her, her, that was number 21, and my sister wears La Lune, which is like number nine. Yeah. So we had to, they, they were from the same range, so yeah. we were twinned. So we had those, and then I went, then I, on, when I was finishing university, my, um, then boyfriend the polyamorous relationship yeah. we all went away to Amsterdam and at the airport I was like right do you know what I finished university and you put a new perfume for this yeah. so I and I tried to get him to buy it for me he didn't pick up on the hints so I bought it myself it's the most expensive thing I've ever bought myself it was mm-hmm. 91 euros mm. which when you're 22 is quite a lot of money it's a hell of a lot that, of money yeah it was, it was Cartier La Lune okay. which is really sharp yeah. And quite citrusy, and I loved it. Did you just smell it at the airport? Up. I think I love yeah, you. I just thought yeah. I need this. Yeah. this is how I want to be. Yeah. Um. So I wore that for a long time, and then um last year, there was the year before I got married. My mum bought me a bottle of um a perfect by Dolce Gabbana called Sunset in Selena. Yeah. Which is which was limited edition, which is expired. Oh. So I now had to buy it off Amazon for sort of like a thousand pounds a yeah. liter a per milliliter. Um, keep it somewhere out of the sun yes and yeah. that's my absolute and that's my current favourite which I wear a lot of and then actually the other one that, and then I got, got scent. an incredibly good memory yeah, well because scent is so yeah. and yeah, then yeah. there was another there's another one that um, Penn Halligan sent me as a Father's Day gift to review uh, and I didn't give it to my dad because I liked it too much myself and it's yeah. kind of that's, is that no, I've got the one from your bathroom <laughs> yeah. but that's sort of like um, spicy but also like gin and tonic Right. And that was sent to me during this really, really bad summer where Marcus, my now husband, and I were going through a really rough patch. And that's really difficult because I love the smell, but it reminds me of being really unhappy. Mm. So all of these... Uh, and so, yeah, I can really change my mood by putting them on. And I, think yeah. I, I think I'm coming up for being ready for a new one. I think this summer oh. I'm going to pick a new one because I feel like 27 is... 
I've been on the same ones for a while and yeah. it's time for something different, time for a change. Yeah. Particularly with the book coming out because that's sort of a new stage of my career. Yeah, but you're not very faithful to a scent then. No, I still have. I still wear Lauren Peritrees and I still wear... Um, I still wear Sarah Jessica Parker Lovely because I have a bottle of it that I haven't finished off. I don't actually like it that much. I love Sarah Jessica Parker's stash. That's interesting. Have you smelled that? No, I haven't smelled that. Okay, I've got it upstairs. Lovely doesn't. Lovely isn't it? No, lovely is just sweet. It's too powdery. Yeah, yeah. But stash is a bit sexier, and Mm. I'm really into it. And it's one of the few celebrity fragrances. I'm like, love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I I want I want to have one that I keep going back to apart from Lone Peritrees. Which was, and to be fair, I have been wearing the Sunset and Selena one for two and a half years, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's uh, discontinued, so I have to find something to replace it with. Oh, well, yeah. I'm going to get some out, <laughs> Rebecca. We can do that post-podcast. Right. Um, I want to thank you so much, A, for going through all of your <laughs> life with such patience and also for sharing um, all you. of your amazing stories. Thank the stories that anybody would want to hear it, but thank you. I mean, I'm going to be listening to it again as a podcast <laughs> when it goes out. No, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So that was Rebecca Reed, And having listened to that episode and how we go off on tangents all the time, I'm sure you can understand that whenever I go and see Rebecca, even for a cup of tea, I end up staying for about two or three hours because she's just so witty and sparkling and we always end up having conversations where I leave feeling like I've had some sort of catharsis. She is an amazingly original thinker and a brilliant writer, so do check out her work. And just to remind you, her book, Perfect Liars, comes out in February. I read it over the summer and I have to say I wolfed it down. It's one of those page turners that just you will not be able to put down and the writing is just fantastic too. Thank you so much for listening and do remember to join me next week when I will be with a brand new guest. See you then. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.